Well, good morning. I am not a stranger. I am your pastor. <laughs> and uh, it is really good to see each of you. Good to be in the house of the Lord today. And I just want a little family thank you. First of all, thank you for praying uh, for us and for your not only just your understanding, but your kindness uh, through this really this year with a two month sabbatical in the summer. I didn't know that then shortly after that I would get COVID. And so it's been a long 17 days and our trip to Nepal was postponed. And then just last night, uh, my wife and I both received our negative test results. And so I'm thankful to be with you here today. Uh, Lord willing, I have to keep saying that, uh, we will depart tomorrow for Nepal. And again, Lord willing, hopefully only be gone for one Sunday and be back with you in two weeks. And so I've been thankful for the other elders. Next week you're in good hands pending his health. Uh, Pastor Sean will preach the next segment in this series. But thank you for praying for us. I feel a lot better today. Um, I already had underlying respiratory and sinus issues, so it struck me differently than it would probably uh, strike most of you. But very thankful to be with you. Um, when I'm not with you, I miss you, and we love you, and you're on our hearts and our prayers, and I know that you have been praying for us as well. If you have any questions, I'll make sure to be accessible during the coffee connect time, things that I wouldn't maybe address here, but just feel free to find me. I'll sort of hang out and uh, be available. But tomorrow, Lord willing, my wife and I leave for Kathmandu. Uh, we will not be trekking in the Himalayas, but we will be visiting existing ministries and a new ministry uh, that is all about getting the gospel to unreached ethne, unreached peoples, people who do not worship Jesus like we can right now. Uh, people that, that don't even have preferences of worship because they do not know Jesus Christ. And that is going to continue to be one of our, that is going to continue to be our primary mission. And so we want to see not only uh, the pastors, elders, overseers going and being involved in that work, we want to see you as well as God leads you and provides and you are able uh, it's something, as a church, I want us to remain passionate about. That is the primary task, getting the gospel to people who don't have it. And so please pray for us. I'll try to send updates, uh, even throughout the weekly emails, like I did this last week. I was adding Nepal trip updates. So if you're not accustomed to reading the different emails, week at a glance, prepare to worship. This is a great time to start that. There's a lot of information in there. And know that you'll be missed while we're traveling, um, and I appreciate your prayers. Why bother with the church? It's a great question. It's a question that came to mind on sabbatical when we visited seven other different local churches. Good churches, some of them. Um, better, worse, there's always a range. But coming away from it, why bother with the church? Just so you know my heart as a shepherd, because we don't get uh, therapy and emotional a lot from the pulpit, uh, every time we gathered with another assembly, I miss Highlands. I miss you. We're a family. We're a household of faith. I think of you. I see your faces. There's a, one of the greatest tools outside of the scripture for the church is the directory that a lot of time is put into so we can see one another and pray for one another. Um, but why bother with the church? This morning, I'm just going to frame it up really simple. And I'll give you my word. I will not preach 59 minutes if you were here last week. I was not. Um, we're going to try to keep these distinct because there's other important things that we leave room for as a faith family. 
um, because we are a distinct community shaped by the preaching and teaching of God's word. To me, that is one of the most clear and concise things that marks the church aside as the church. A lot of Christians never stop to ask what God's word says about the church. It's, it's kind of fascinating that people, they do church, they arrive at a church, they're part of a church, but they don't really understand what the church actually is and therefore how it should function. Because of this, many even Christians aren't even sure what makes a church different than a Bible study or a ladies' conference. There's really there, there's nothing that helps them distinct between the difference and the importance placed on either of those, or if a music ministry is primary or secondary or tertiary, or whether baptism is non-negotiable, or if communion is even necessary. And so part of this, why bother with the church? We're trying to come back in and, and capture back the center of who we are. I believe the popular disinterest in the church results from a wrong view, or at least a, a low view of the church. Uh, this stems from an equally wrong and low view of the gospel, which we could keep arguing this logically, which grows from a wrong view of Christ and of sin and of holiness, and that somehow none of these are intricately linked with one another. So I can walk with Jesus and sit in my living room and have my special time with him and be totally disconnected from what God has designed as his gathering of people and not think it is affecting me or other people in a vital way. Mark Dever stated this, the church arises only from the gospel. And a distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel. John Stott said, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. Why do we even move through a subject like this? Because it's popular, and I'm not removing the teeth out of this argument, to be able to say, I really love Jesus, but his people, hmm, right? Not so much. Because when we gather together, that's when, we, that's when there's friction, and that's when we have to bear with one another in love. And that's where we consider others more important than ourselves. And some of our sermons and application are going to move towards how we practice the one another's here at Highlands. Why bother with the church? Real quick overview. Uh, week one, why bother with the church? We said this, because the gates of hell, the realm of death and the grave will not prevail against the church. It's the first mention of the word church spoken by Jesus in the first gospel arranged in your New Testament canon. And it says this, because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I was encouraged by this truth three weeks ago when I led a memorial service for the Zervis family. And it was an encouragement at that memorial service with all the reminders of death and separation to call to mind what Jesus said. The gates of hell, the realm of death, doesn't have any victory there. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 15.26, Paul says this, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death separates. It seems irreversible. You know, so much in this life seems as something when in actuality it's a totally different reality. It seems as though death wins. I mean, even, even Steve this morning was talking about the beautiful leaves you see is actually part of a death process. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
Jesus raised Lazarus and he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's a good reason to bother with the church. Because somehow the church and the gospel are so intricately linked that what you see is a picture of something that the gates of hell, the realm of death, cannot overcome. And I love the encouragement here. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then in week two, we, we answered it with a different, a different way. Why bother with the church? And that is because of what the church is. It is the community of all true believers in Jesus Christ for all time that has been purchased with Jesus' own blood. I want, you, I want you to hear the value in that. You can't overstate the value when he says that the church has been purchased with the sacrificial blood of Christ. For example, in Ephesians 5.25, this is not just talking about a local church, but all believers throughout all time. Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Who's her? All believers throughout all time. Acts 20, 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, he calls them down and he says, care for the church of God. Why? Well, he obtained it with his own blood. He did that for all believers for all times. And that means for us then, why would we bother with the church even when it is bothersome at times? Because there are universal, global, and local implications. If we look at the word ecclesia, we'll see that it's used in all of those ways. Global, universal, and local. And yet the primary usage is local. It talks about a local assembly. For example, 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The churches of Asia. Real people, real history, real geography. Or Colossians 4:15, The church in her house specific gathering point where ministry is being done. Or 1 Thessalonians 1.1 to the church of the Thessalonians. Again, believers in a historical geographical location. So throughout this series, here's what I want us to feel sort of the gravity of. There is no other community in the world like the church. Therefore, it has no replacement. It cannot be set aside or ignored without serious harm to ourselves and others. So this is the third segment. Why bother with the church? Let me begin by asking that maybe a different way or approaching it a little differently. If you were to cast a vision for Highlands, if you were brought into a room with eight, eight other people, and it was upon you to cast a, a vision for this church, what would you put as non-negotiable and vital? For Highlands to be considered a church, a biblical New Testament functioning gathering of believers, what would be vital? What would be on your list? And in a sense, you'd have to start spelling out my job description and the elders' job descriptions in this. So of all the other things we would like to see done, what would you say this should be a vision for Highlands? Or... What would you clearly define as a process for moving a person from salvation, believing in Jesus, to spiritual maturity, following Jesus and growing in him, to effective ministry, serving Jesus by faithfully and sacrificially serving others? What would that look like? 
Early on in ministry, I became disillusioned with what I would call the empire-building mindset in ministry. Sort of the gauges and the metrics that define success just as if any other worldly or secular or un-Christian organization would gauge success. And it's a real pressure. It's a real pressure not only placed upon young men in ministry, but upon mature men in ministry. Gary Bretfeld refreshingly wrote in his book, Great Leader, Great Teacher, said this, We have been hoodwinked. We have come to accept a standard for leadership that actually robs the church of great leaders. The standing status success standard is not a biblical standard. It is a world standard. Pastors are not to be CEOs, and our best models are not corporate executives, coaches, generals, and presidents. Far from it, while much can be learned about leadership from corporate CEOs, team coaches, military generals, and politicians, the biblical leader is first and foremost a skilled and godly shepherd teacher. That focuses and centers what the local church has to be primarily about. So when we talk about what is a vision for Highlands, it helps to ask for me to ask questions like this. What would be a proper vision for a church in the desolate, oppressive region of Diego Suarez in northern Madagascar? What would a church have to be there and what must it be doing? Or what is a proper vision? We, tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll travel to Nepal. Just east of Nepal is a kingdom called Bhutan. And in Bhutan, it is, it is one of the last, it is the only left remaining Buddhist empire known for its monasteries and fortresses. What would a church there have to be and have to be doing to be considered a church? What would your answer be? Here's what we're going to look at. Why bother with the church? Of the 114 uses of the word ecclesia, 109 refer to a local assembly. What are those uses of that local assembly, what do we find them describing or doing? And here's what we'll see. All the important attributes of the church from those 109 uses can, can really be broiled down to two primary headings. Number one, the right preaching and teaching of God's word, right? God's truth proclaimed at the center of which is the gospel accurately preached from Genesis to Revelation. And secondly, and this one surprises some people, so I want us to be able to get into the scriptural text and find support for this. It is the right administration or the right picture of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Christ's work displayed. Christ's work proclaimed. Christ's work displayed by a gathered together people. And the question is, and this is the question you should be asking anytime anybody preaches, whether here at Highlands or anything you listen to, is, is the question is, do we see this emphasis, those two marks I just put forward and those connections in Scripture? Well, let's look at it. Matthew 28. Now, don't turn your mind off because you know this is the Great Commission. Sometimes we do that with familiar passages. I know this. I know where he's going with this. Um, what we're doing is we're looking at the example of Jesus in reference to preaching, teaching, and the right picture of the ordinances. In the example of Jesus, both aspects are found in his commission to his disciples. 
In Matthew 28, verse 18, Scripture says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, all right, in heaven and on earth, right, complete domain, has been given to me. That's a, that's a surprising statement. It's supposed to startle. You have the one who is now risen from the dead, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ and his church that he is building. All authority has been given to him. Verse 19, go therefore and what? He doesn't say do miracles. He doesn't say create large organizations. Make disciples. Of all nations. Well, what does that look like? What does that entail? Because that's the verb. Now you have these participles that sort of build up and describe what making disciples is. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. First thing he says is what? Baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. What does he say next? Teaching them. Do you see how those two are put together now? So you've got biblical preaching and teaching. And here you have baptism. I mean, with all authority and him being present everywhere, because he says, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He says this almost underwhelming thing. Go make disciples. Go gather groups of follower learners. Go teach. You know, even before Jesus gave his great commission prior to his ascension, turn, turn, turn to Mark chapter one. We see his emphasis on teaching. Uh, we, several of our men are meeting on Thursday mornings. Uh, reading through the Gospel of Mark together. It's just reading a section, commenting, giving input. And I was only there for Mark chapter 1 because then I got sick. But it stood out to me, the emphasis of Jesus' ministry early on in, in Mark's action-packed account of Peter's record and narrative of how much emphasis was actually on teaching. Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus says this, let us go on to the next towns that I may what? I'm actually going to have you verbalize with me this morning. That I may what? Preach. Preach there also. Look at what he says. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. You know, in the same chapter, there's demonic activity, there's a leper being healed. And at one point he even tells the leper, after he heals him, don't tell anyone. Which doesn't make sense when you first read it. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you take this miracle of an amazing healing, proven, and tell that man, don't tell anyone? Well, because healing was not Jesus' primary ministry. And if healing became the rave, it would have prevented him from what? getting into the populate, populated, dense city centers in preaching the gospel, which is why he came out. Sometimes we miss the simplicity of Jesus' straightforward ministry of teaching and preaching. He taught using parables, proverbs, metaphors, questions, simple object lessons. He taught formally in the synagogues. He taught informally along the lake, at a well, in the marketplace, on a hillside. We have a Sermon on the Mount. We have an Olivet Discourse. We have teaching after teaching after teaching. What stood out about him, among other things, after he taught the Sermon on the Mount, it says this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 34. 
When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. What was his first response to that need? Keep reading. And he began to teach many things. Now, Jesus' response to hungry people, seeing them as sheep without a shepherd, leaderless followers, was a response of teaching. He does then enlist the disciples to meet some of that need, provides a miracle for them. But actually, it wasn't their physical need that struck his heart first. It was their teaching need. Jesus led by teaching. Later in the Gospels, at the end of John 21, we have Peter's painful denial of Christ. He was defeated, devastated, broken, ashamed. He believed he could no longer fit. He was fit for ministry in the kingdom. Good men get there. Do you know that? Peter returned to the sea. He grabbed the nets, started building calluses on his hands again. He's in the sea doing what he was so familiar with doing. And it was there on a beach that the resurrected Jesus appears and starts to restore Peter back to himself for a specific ministry. We're not going to read the entire text, but in John 27, there were three denials. And so Jesus asks three questions of affirmation. He is offsetting the failure. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I don't think he's talking about the fish. He's talking about the other men whom Jesus said, though they all deny you, I never will. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Lord, you know that I love you. What did, what did Jesus then tell him? Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, I love this, you know everything. Which means you, you, I should have believed you when you said be, be, before the rooster crowed twice, I would deny you three times. He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Where do we see Peter feeding sheep? Where do we see this fisherman restored back to kingdom work, feeding sheep. The book of Acts is really the first generation of church history. The book of Acts is divided by the ministries of two distinct men. Peter gets basically the first half. The Apostle Paul gets the second half. And what you have recorded in the first half of the book of Acts are five sermons, recorded, preserved sermons where Peter is preaching. A lot, of other, a lot of other stuff is going on in the book of Acts, amazing stuff. But what you have here is a word-centered preaching ministry of Peter. That's what it looks like for a restored man to feed sheep. It is primarily a preaching and teaching ministry. Look at, look at Luke 24. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. This is another one of the Great Commission passages, not as familiar, but there's some specific details in this that I I want us to see this morning. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said, and I'm 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 going to emphasize some words, these are my words that I spoke to you, right? So it's verbal ministry. 
while I was still with you, that everything, what's the next word? Written, okay, Scripture, about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is taking these men back to the Old Testament to support his ministry. By the way, some of the most amazing events just happened in the world. A man came back from the grave. Mind-blowing. And he says, oh, by the way, the Old Testament needs to be fulfilled. And this is where you're going to see me. And everything that's written, in verse 45, what does he do? He doesn't start performing new miracles, even though he just conquered death. It says, then he opened their minds to understand what? Do we see this? (laughs) To understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. There's our ministry to in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, your witnesses of these things. Now, we could spend a series of four sermons just looking at the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. But I want us to move into the next sort of genre, the, the apostolic literature, and see if we see the same thing going on there that we see in Jesus' ministry. This emphasis that we are a distinct community shaped by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Okay. I Oop, Siri heard me. Technology. Turn to the book of Acts. She's might, she might change screens on me real quick. Do we see this emphasis in other places of Scripture? In Acts, we're going to see a very close connection, and, and I don't want us to get ten minutes away from the end and fail to see the connection here between preaching and teaching and baptism. The early church preached and baptized amidst the climate that was anti-Jesus and hostile. And yet we see them doing exactly what Jesus commissioned them to do. Matter of fact, for Peter's first sermon, we just talked about we have five sermons preserved. In Acts 2, Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 14. He's starting to feed the sheep. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, that's preaching, And addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. You know what Peter does at that point? He begins to quote the Old Testament. He quotes a portion out of Joel's prophecy. He is supporting New Testament experience in Acts with Old Testament scripture. He continues to explain through preaching, Acts 2, 22 to 25, continues to support his explanation with Old Testament Scripture. And here's the response then to the proclaimed word. Look at verse 37, Acts chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, they heard his sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of them, And to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, and I want you to note the close, uncomfortable connection here. Repent and what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We're going to linger there for a second because I want you to feel the awkwardness. Repent and be baptized for forgiveness? Do you feel that? 
Now, this has wrongly led some people to conclude in the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, meaning there is no salvation apart from water baptism. That's, that's, that would be a heretical doctrine. The scripture does not support that. But, but, but I'm not here to simply just say that's wrong. I actually want to invite you in to feel the closeness which a lot of us don't place between repentance and baptism. Between belief and an ordinance. How vitally and closely connected those pictures are. Peter's sermon at Pentecost closed with the charge, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Look down at verse 38 or look down at verse uh, 41 because that was fulfilled that same day. Verse 41, Acts chapter 2. So those who received his word were baptized. It's a lot closer connection than most of us realize. Well, then what do we see the early assembly of the church devoted to? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, first on the list. So here you have that emphasis of preaching and teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The church is a distinct community shaped by the preaching and teaching of God's word. Look at Acts chapter 8. Preaching continues to be the emphasis modeled by those scattered by persecution. You would think with persecution, they would go maybe take some time off. Look at Acts chapter eight, verse three. Saul, we get to know him later as the Apostle Paul. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about guess what they were doing. What does it say next? Preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. You have this word-centered ministry. Look at verse 12. Because those in Samaria who believed Philip's preaching followed it with, guess what? Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were what? Baptized. Both men and women. By the way, all you're seeing uh, being fulfilled in, in this church history of Acts is exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do. Go make disciples. What does that look like? Well, you make disciples. They're going to believe. You're going to baptize them and you're going to teach them all things. Look at Acts 26, because now Philip is sent to a desert place to evangelize a specific individual. You know the story. We'll pick up our reading in verse 26. Acts 8, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And this is amazing. This man who, who, is, who is serving the queen has an actual copy of the prophet Isaiah, or at least a section of Isaiah. So you have this word-centered ministry here. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Verse 29, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shears is silent, he continues to read that section. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? 
about himself or about someone else? Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Guess what happens next? Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? You see this close, intricate link. And he commanded the chariot to stop and they went down into the water and then then look at verse 40. But Philip then found himself miraculously at Azotus and he passed through. And guess what he continued to do even after that amazing experience? He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Next chapter, Saul of Tarsus, Acts 9, 18. We're going to really pick up speed. After the Apostle Paul believed in Jesus as the Son of God, it says this, Acts 9, 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was what? Baptized. In Acts 9, 20, Paul follows the same pattern where he has a ministry on missionary journeys and beginning in Damascus where he, quote, Acts 9, verse 20, began to preach in the synagogues. One specific example, Lydia's house, Acts 16. Okay, we're almost done through Acts now. It said this, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said, preaching, and after she was baptized. The Philippian jailer. I think Jason had mentioned this passage two weeks ago. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in your household. And they spoke the word preaching to all who were in the house. And that same day, it says this, and he was baptized at once. Acts chapter 16, 29 to 33. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, was baptized. Crispus, Acts 18, 8. The ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And we just go on and on and on and seeing these connections. This is the apostolic practice. This is what the early church did when it held to the apostolic teaching. They devoted themselves to it. This is what is clear and explicit in the New Testament for a primary ministry of the church. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. 2 Corinthians 1.19, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was preached among you by me, Silas, and Timothy. Galatians 1.16, God was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Ephesians 3.8, grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Philippians 1.18, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If we had time, we could look at the list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, the list of gifts in Ephesians 4, and all the first primary gifts are apostolic and prophetic and teaching. I want to close with Romans because there's something so vital and so irreplaceable about preaching that Paul moves through this logical connection and this will be our conclusion. Paul asked this question in Romans 10 verse 14. How then will they call on Him? Whether in the Himalayas or the kingdom of Bhutan or in areas of the world that have yet to hear the gospel preached, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? The answer is they can't. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? They can't. 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Well, they can't. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Why is that so vital? Because of what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, that men, women, and children are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Why bother with the church? Because we are a distinct community shaped by the preaching and teaching of God's word. We hold forth the word of life, a message of hope and love and peace and joy in believing in Jesus Christ as our King and Savior. Amy Carmichael worked in India for 55 years. The last 20 years she was bedridden. She rescued girls from temple prostitution, not unlike some of the ministry that we will visit in Kathmandu. She wrote this, The amazing thing is that everyone who reads the Bible has the same joyful thing to say about it. And she worked with some of the most miserable people in the world. In every land, and every language, it is the same tale where the book is read not with the eyes only, but with the mind and heart. The life is changed. Sorrowful people are comforted. Sinful people are transformed. Peoples who are in the dark walk in the light. Is it not wonderful to think that this book, which is such a mighty power, if it gets a chance to work in an honest heart, is in our hands today? And so Mark Dever wisely concludes when he's trying to give this distinction and description of the church. Quote, Scripture's beautiful sufficiency frees us from the tyranny of mere human opinion. God has revealed Himself by His Word. He is speaking to us, preparing us to present, represent Him today and to see Him tomorrow. A congregation of regenerate members fulfilling the responsibilities given to us by Christ Himself and His Word, regularly meeting together, led by a body of godly elders, is the picture that God has given us in His Word of His church, what He calls His household, a household bought with His own blood. I'm going to invite our music team forward. And as they're getting in place, I just want to tap on why this is so important for us as a church. Uh, number one, our Lord's Day worship gathering is primary. It's the front door to the house. It's not anything else. It's not another Bible study. It's not even our home groups. This is really the front door into the living room because of what happens here. This is where we come together to focus on God. We don't arrive to be served, but to serve. We don't show up to be consumers, but to contribute. It is here where we fulfill 1 Timothy 4.13. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. That's why authoritative monologues, Scripture slides between songs, Scripture reading, Sunday school equipping electives. It's here where we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, Colossians 3.16. Teaching and admonishing one another. We need to be together to do that. Secondly, in reference to our children and student ministries, I love what Paul told Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures. Why is that so important for us as a church? Because the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then third, really, the time we set aside for preaching, the primacy of preaching. 
It's a charge given by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy before he dies. He tells young Timothy, preach the word with complete patience and teaching. And here's why. Here's the warning. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Why bother with the church? Because we are a distinct community shaped by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. A Word that shows Christ for who He is and how He has revealed Himself to us accurately. Let's pray.